We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. Well, it looks funny out there. See my glove out there, Jim. Jimmy Moore, get back in. Okay. Good morning, Gordo. Yes, how are you? How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? By cooperating together in these new realms of infinity. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode 68 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. I recommend listening to episodes 65 through 67 before you listen to this episode. And now, Jiminy 6 and 7 with Wally Sherald, Tom Stafford, Frank Borman, and Jim Lovell. Part 4. When we left off last time, Gemini 6A and Gemini 7 had achieved the world's first manned space rendezvous. Now, you may be asking yourself, why was that the first space rendezvous? What about the Soviets' Vostok 3 and Vostok 4 rendezvous? Well, here's the difference. When Vostok 3 flew within 5 kilometers of Vostok 4 in August of 1962, some people believed, with the help of Soviet news dispatches, that rendezvous had been accomplished. However, Vostok 3 and 4 were in different orbital planes, nor could they maneuver to stop relative motion between them. In simple terms, it was good shooting from the launch pad, but the result was the same as if two bullets had passed in the middle of a battlefield. Here's what Wally Sherall had to say about it. Quote, Somebody said, When you come to within five kilometers, you've rendezvoused. If anybody thinks they pulled a rendezvous off at five kilometers, have fun. This is where we started doing our work. I don't think rendezvous is over until you are stopped, completely stopped, with no relative motion between the two vehicles at a range of approximately 40 meters. That's rendezvous. Here's a clip of Sherall explaining rendezvous and station keeping. Rendezvous and docking are most essential to complete the Apollo lunar mission. Now on this mission with Gemini 7, we and 6 came within about a foot of Gemini 7. Shortly after that, Gemini 7 maintained station on us as well. But rendezvous and docking are feasible while Gemini 6A and 7 were station keeping, Borman and Lovell had been fascinated by the fireworks of Gemini 6A's thrusters during braking, and they were startled by the 12-meter-long flame coming out of the thrusters. As Sherall and Stafford neared Gemini 7, there was a second surprise. Borman said, quote, You've got a lot of stuff all around the back end of you, end quote. Minutes later, Sherall told Borman, quote, so do you, end quote. Cords and stringers, three to five meters long, streamed and flapped behind both spacecraft. 
Rendezvous maneuvers had cost Gemini 6A only 51 kilograms of fuel. Chiral still had 62% left in his tanks. Rendezvous had been easy, Chiral said, and there was plenty of fuel for station keeping, flying around, formation flying, and parking the spacecraft in specific relative positions. Foreman and Lovell were not so wealthy. Flight control told them to stop maneuvers when the Gemini 7 fuel tanks dropped to an 11% supply. For over three Earth orbits, the two spacecraft stayed at ranges of from 0.3 meters to 90 meters. Gemini 6A approached Gemini 7 to examine the stringers on one occasion. On another, they flew nose to nose. Chiral and Stafford swapped the controls back and forth because of the sun streaming so brightly through first one window and then another. When it was time for Borman and Lovell to perform an experiment, Chiral and Stafford moved out 12 meters and parked. For some 20 minutes in one instance, neither bothered to touch the steering handle as the spacecraft remained stable in relation to its sister ship. On the first night pass, the two spacecraft faced each other at distances ranging from 6 to 18 meters. Chiral had worried about visibility during darkness, but it turned out to be excellent. The docking light, handheld pin light, and even Gemini 7's cabin lights were clearly visible to him. Using what Chiral called his eyeball ranging system, the Gemini 6A crew did an in-plane fly-around of Gemini 7, roving out to 90 meters. Believing that this was too far away to be called station-keeping, Chiral hurriedly brought Gemini 6A back within 30 meters. The astronauts were highly impressed with their ability to control the spacecraft. Velocity inputs as low as 0.03 meters per second provided very precise maneuvering. Because of this fine control, Chiral and Stafford concluded that nuzzling into and docking with a target vehicle would be no problem. Here's Wally Chiral explaining some of the station-keeping maneuvers. After we completed the rendezvous maneuver, we maintained formation, actually we were station-keeping, for a period of about five and a half hours. Now this included an in-plane fly-around maneuver and an out-of-plane fly-around maneuver. And here is Tom Stafford. During this period of time, each of us controlled Spacecraft 6 for approximately 50% of the maneuvers. We separated from Gemini 7 at 6 p.m. Cape time. This was performed by a 9 feet per second retrograde maneuver. We separated to a distance of approximately 20 miles and performed experiments for the next two orbits. As the pilot's bedtime neared, Chiral flipped the spacecraft blunt in forward and fired his thrusters to impart a small separation speed. Eventually, the crews settled down 16 kilometers apart. After launch, rendezvous, and station keeping, Chiral and Stafford were utterly exhausted and hungry. They ate a good meal and went to sleep. When Chiral woke up with a stuffy head and runny nose, he was glad that the mission was flexible, with the option of landing after one day of flight if everything had been done. He and Stafford had achieved all their mission objectives, 
and the flight controllers would not be able to give too much more attention to Gemini 6A anyway. Gemini 7's fuel cell needed help, and Borman, Lovell, and Mission Control had to focus on its problems if the mission were to be able to last 14 days. But Stafford caught everybody's attention for a few minutes. In an excited tone, he reported, Gemini 7, this is Gemini 6. We have an object. Looks like a satellite going from north to south, probably in polar orbit. Looks like he might be going to re-enter soon. Stand by one. Then, over the radio, came the strains of the pilot's plane, Jingle Bells. The spirit of Christmas glowed. Gemini 7 was about to begin its twelfth day, and Gemini 6A, having demonstrated rendezvous in fine fashion, was going home. Here's the clip. Michael Knapp, producer of the Jose Jimenez in Orbit record album in the early 60s, had given Chiral a small four-hole harmonica on December 8, 1965. Stafford, the other half of the two-man space band, jingled small bells. Francis Slaughter of the Cape Flight Crew Operations Office had fastened them to his boots before a training simulation. For a joke, he took the bells on the flight to provide the rhythm section. You may recall from episode 58 that it had been Chiral who furnished the corned beef sandwich that had created such a furor for the Gemini 3 crew. Sometime after his flight was over, Chiral was asked why he didn't get in too much trouble for bringing the harmonica. Chiral replied, quote, I think the timing was pretty good on that, end quote which meant Christmas was only a few days away. By now, it was time for Gemini 6A to depart. Chiral called Gemini 7 over the radio and said, quote, Really good job, Frank and Jim. We'll see you on the beach. End quote. He then flipped Gemini 6A's blunt end forward and jettisoned the equipment section. Retrofire followed automatically. Here's the audio. Chiral placed the spacecraft in an inverted, heads-down attitude to see Earth's horizon. Nearing the 100,000-meter fringe of the atmosphere, Chiral set the bank angle at 55 degrees left and held it until computer guidance took over at 85,000 meters. The spacecraft threatened to overshoot its planned landing point. This had to be centered by banking first left, then right. Since the Gemini spacecraft obtained its greatest lift flying straight ahead, banking cut lift and shortened range. The crew turned the computer off at 24,000 meters, 
deployed the drogue chute at 14,000 meters and punched out the main chute at 3,200 meters. Jiminy 6A landed about 13 kilometers from its planned impact point, making this the first successfully controlled re-entry. And there was another first. They did it in full view of live television beamed from the USS WASP via satellite transmission. As on his Mercury flight, Sherall elected to remain aboard his spacecraft while he was hauled onto the carrier deck. Thus, on December 16, 1965, after 16 revolutions and 25 hours 16 minutes, the world's first manned spaceflight rendezvous mission became a matter of record. Here is the BBC's coverage of the splashdown. It was an excellent splashdown, and half an hour later, millions of television viewers watched as the captain brought his huge ship gently alongside. Meanwhile, Gemini 7 goes on, round and round the Earth, slowly clocking up its required 206 orbits. And here is Wally Sherall's comments on the mission of Gemini 6A. It was really a treat to come back aboard in style on number three elevator. To have the realization that to accomplish the lunar mission, we had to prove endurance, and we're still proving it now, and to affect rendezvous. Rendezvous is so important to bring our men back from the surface of the moon and back to the Earth, and I hope also to number three elevator. The National Aeronautica Association, representing the Federation of Aeronautics International, certified Gemini 7-6A for four manned spaceflight achievements. First, longest distance in orbit. Second, longest duration in orbit. Third, distance in group flight. And fourth, duration in group flight. Back on Gemini 7, after Gemini 6A had departed, Borman and Lovell realized that their incentive had gone with them. Events like station-keeping, experiments, getting out of their suits, and even waiting for the Gemini 6A visitors had sustained their enthusiasm. The novelty of spaceflight had worn thin by this time, and their thoughts had strayed homeward. With 6A gone, and almost three days left, the mission began to drag. Beyond all doubts, 14 days inside this spacecraft was a long haul in a short frame. While in drifting flight, Borman read some of Mark Twain's Roughing It, and Lovell read part of Drums Along the Mohawk by Walter Edmonds. Both selected partly because they had nothing to do with the space program. During a mission as long as Gemini 7, impressions only indirectly connected with the flight naturally came to mind. For instance, Lovell indulged in a long discussion on legs. It went something like this. Legs were affected the most by zero-g because you don't realize how much exercise you do every day. Just combating Earth's gravity, you do quite a bit, and legs are designed to do most of that work for you. They get you around, they walk, they lift up your body. Suddenly, for two weeks, the gravity is taken away. The legs don't have a job anymore. They're just there. 
A man without legs for Jiminy would have been perfect because you could utilize that space for something else. Everything except for maybe EVA. But in that spacecraft, we didn't use the legs for anything. End quote. After Jiminy 6A had left, Borman and Lovell took off their suits so they could be more comfortable during the final days of the mission. NASA was still wrestling with the suit issue. Here's a clip of NASA soliciting comments from Frank Borman about wearing the suits. Frank, we're moving right along in this suit situation. I would like to get some more specific comments from you at this time. Roger, there's no question in our minds the only way to fire these things is without pressure suits. Do you have any additional comments regarding use of the suits during the full duration? I'm convinced we can run the whole works without suits. All we need is a suit for re-entry and emergency stored on board somewhere. Roger, we copy. Then something occurred to break up the monotony. Upon waking from a sleep period, Borman and Lovell discovered a thruster problem. When Borman tried to fire thrust chambers 3 and 4, only whitish, unburnt fuel streamed out. To compensate, Borman used the pitch thrusters to stop the spacecraft from yawing, and thrusters 11 and 12 also helped, although they were a little too strong in control. After the flight was over, one of the non-working thrusters was tested. The laminate in the thrust chamber was found to be the old-style 90-degree layup instead of the new 6-degree design that had solved the burnout problem. While the thrusters were an annoying problem, a more serious problem was occurring with the fuel cell. Despite the warning light during the first orbit, the cell had provided enough electrical power for the spacecraft to operate normally for 126 hours. The ground analysis team, with an operating model set up in St. Louis, had helped keep it going, but power output was only partial by the end of the twelfth day. The next day, the fuel cell threatened to quit completely as the warning light burned continuously. Chimney 7 might have had to end early with a landing in the Pacific Ocean, but the test results in St. Louis showed that the electrical system would carry them the rest of the 14 days. Relieved, Borman slept better than he had on any other night in space. On the last day, Borman and Lovell finished their packing, putting everything where it belonged. When Capcom asked about their baggage, Borman said the cockpit was clean. He and Lovell were wearing their suits, and they were all set to go home. Before the retro rockets fired, the ground stations kept the crew busy for two hours on the re-entry checklist. Flight Surgeon Barry reminded them to elevate their feet and pump their legs. Borman broke in to say that he and Lovell wanted to get out of the spacecraft as soon as possible. They had no desire to wait around to be stylishly hoisted aboard a carrier. As they started their last orbit, the tracking stations along the circuit bade them goodbye. The music being broadcast included the tune, Going Back to Houston. With retrofire approaching in the darkness near Canton Island in the Pacific, the crew wondered, as do all astronauts, whether the retro rockets would fire. Lovell described his emotions graphically. Here's the quote. 
Retrofire has a unique apprehension in the fact that both of us are aviators and we understand the apprehension in flying. If you have an accident in an airplane, something's going to happen. You hit something or it blows up. You're coming down. Now, in liftoff and reentry, a space vehicle is like an airplane. Something's happening. But if the rockets fail to retro, if they fail to go off, nothing's going to happen. You just sit up there and that's it. Nothing happens at all. So that's the unique type of apprehension because you know that you've gotten rid of the adapter and you know that you're going to have 24 hours of oxygen, 10 hours of battery, and very little water. So you play all sorts of tricks to get those retros to fire. End quote. But it turned out Lovell did not have anything to worry about. The first retro rocket fired automatically and on time. The next two rockets followed in quick succession, and after a pause, the fourth fired. As the firings jolted them, Lovell said with relief, quote, That's one big hurdle over with, Tiger. End quote. Foreman answered, quote, You're right, Ace. End quote. From Houston Capcom, Elliot C. told them to fly a 35-degree left bank until computer guidance cut in. A surprise level reminded Borman that 53 degrees had been planned. Borman questioned Elliot C., who confirmed the 35-degree bank, which was later discovered to be an error. But by that time, the computer had come online and it was actually commanding the spacecraft with Borman banking to the right and left following the needles, as Lovell later said, quote, You have no control over how close you're going to get to the target. Your only control is how good that computer is doing, or how good your center of gravity was when you set up the computer and the retrofire time. Borman rolled Gemini 7 head down to use the horizon as a guide for keeping the proper spacecraft attitude. He could see nothing from his window, however, and had to depend entirely on his instruments and on Lovell, who finally saw the horizon after about six and a half minutes and began calling out adjustments. Borman concluded that re-entering was definitely a two-man job for Gemini. There was no way to follow the needles on an instrument panel and watch the horizon at the same time. Since they had been weightless for two weeks, the astronauts really felt the G-forces. But during the long glide, which was not a sharp angle descent, G-forces never rose higher than 3.9. This was in sharp contrast to the Mercury flights that had an average of 7.7 Gs. But the higher G did not bother them too much since they were very busy trying to get as close to that carrier as possible. The re-entry control system worked well, holding Gemini 7 steady until the drogue parachute came out. The spacecraft rocked 8 degrees to either side, giving the crew a shaking on the way down. Lovell opened the snorkel. Then smoke and an acrid smell filled his hood, causing his eyes to water. But even his smarting eyes were glad to see the main parachute deploy. Little did the crew care that they hit the water with a heavy thud. Borman's thoughts were elsewhere, 
He was trying to spot the recovery helicopter, and when he did not see any aircraft, he remarked, quote, Shoot! We have missed it more than Wally did, end quote. The two command pilots had a small bet on who would land closer to the target, but Borman was not sure when he began to talk with the pilot of one of the helicopters in the area of the spacecraft's descent. Maybe they were near the aiming point after all. On December 18, 1965, after 330 hours and 35 minutes, Jiminy 7 came to rest on what Lovell called the good old aqua firma, missing the target by 11.8 kilometers. Mission objectives had been achieved in fine fashion. Provided the crew came through in good physical condition, it could be assumed that an Apollo team could fly safely to the moon and back. Borman felt a little dizzy, uh, Lovell not at all. Borman suggested that they get out of their suits as it was warm in the spacecraft, but the effort was just too great. They turned on the oxygen repressurization valve and were soon comfortable. The pararescuemen were already working on the flotation collar and the recovery helicopters were hovering nearby. Half an hour after landing, Borman and Lovell were greeted aboard the USS Wasp, the second spaceship crew the carrier had snared in a few days. Here's a clip of Frank and Jim describing the recovery. We'd been in the water about 10 minutes when we saw a Navy frogman's face in the right window. He plugged in his interphone and his first words were Merry Christmas. The recovery forces were quite fast and I believe in about 26 minutes from splashdown uh, we were on board the helicopter. The chief symptom, in fact the only symptom which we noticed was the heaviness of the legs, that's all. When the returning astronauts came onto the deck of the carrier, they were tired but happy. They walked slightly stooped and a little gimpy-legged, partly because of their pressure suits and the ship's roll, but mostly because they were just plain tired. Perhaps even more remarkable than being able to walk across the deck without stumbling was the fact that the crew had been able to get into the horse collar to be hoisted into the helicopter. Dr. Charles Berry was jubilant over the medical results of Gemini 7. Dr. Berry said, quote, The most miraculous thing was when they could get out of the spacecraft and not flop on their faces, and they could go into the helicopter and get out on the carrier deck and walk pretty well. They were in better physiological shape than the Gemini 5 crew. Initially, their tilt-table responses were not as bad and did not last as long. It looked more like the 4-day response by far than the 8-day. The calcium loss was the same way. Amazingly, they maintained their total blood volume. They didn't get any decrease. But they did it in a peculiar way. They still lost the red cell mass, but they replaced the plasma. They put more fluid in. Apparently, there had been enough time for an adaptive phenomenon to take place. End quote. When the detailed examination started, the physicians found that Lovell, who had worn the cardiovascular cuffs, had less blood pooling in his legs than Borman. 
After a good night's sleep on board ship, both men looked rested and said they were. They had made the long haul in that short frame in fine style. Christmas week of 1965 was perhaps the high-water mark of manned spaceflight up to that time. The string of successes had an unplanned effect. Manned spaceflight became almost commonplace. The novelty was starting to wear off. Who did what and when tended to blur. Any single event, such as America's first suborbital flight or first orbital mission, became hard to recall. Perhaps more than intended, NASA had achieved the program goal implied in the Project Development Plan of 1961 to put spaceflight on something like a routine basis. However, the routine loses news value and scorecards on Russia versus America in the space race vanished when the lead clearly passed from east to west. Gilruth may have summed up the bright look of things at that post-recovery conference on December 18th when he said, quote, It has been a fabulous year for manned space flight. I guess you all realize that this year, since March, we have put ten men in orbit and brought them back, and we have accomplished the major part of the Gemini space objectives at this point in the program. End quote. Since we haven't heard them for a while, here are the four major goals of the Gemini program. Number one, to subject two men and supporting equipment to long-duration flights. That has been accomplished. Number two, to effect rendezvous and docking with other orbiting vehicles and to maneuver the docked vehicles in space using the propulsion system of the target vehicle for such maneuvers. This has been accomplished except for docking. Number three, to perfect methods of re-entry and landing the spacecraft at a pre-selected landing point. This was accomplished. And number four, to gain additional information concerning the effects of weightlessness on crew members and to record the physiological reactions of crew members during long-duration flights. This one was accomplished as well. NASA faced the new year with an equal number of manned Gemini flights still to be flown, and it expected to do this with an unbroken chain of successes. Morale was high as many program objectives had been stamped achieved. Post-flight celebrations were carried across the seas when President Johnson asked Borman and Sherall to make an eight-nation goodwill tour of the Far East. Meanwhile, engineers at the Manned Spacecraft Center prepared for a Gemini Mid-Program Conference to discuss the results of the first seven Gemini missions, as they had done for the Mercury program in the summary conference held in Houston in October of 1963. And finally... Frank Borman won his bet with Wally Sherall on who could come closest to their pre-selected splashdown points. Borman made it within 11.8 kilometers, while Sherall was off by 13 kilometers.
Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.